Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Prasad Kathekar. He is the CEO of Dashworks, uh, and uh, we've been using Dashworks internally at Invisible for a long time now, uh, and really excited to have you on the show. Thanks, you. It is good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for my listeners, what is Dashworks? So Dashworks is a single point of entry for a company's internal knowledge that is typically scattered across different apps and services like Slack or Notion or Salesforce or Google Drive. All of us use dozens of apps to get work done. And what Dashworks does is it centralizes the information that's scattered across them, makes it easy to access all of it from one place in a natural language uh, experience. So think of it as a knowledge assistant that's trained on your company's data and can answer questions related to your internal data. And it's so interesting because as I've become a knowledge management uh, professional, I've started to notice how big of a problem it is. And it doesn't seem like it was a problem like in the 1960s and the 1970s. What did this problem look like? I think there have been three waves of enterprise software, which have kind of mirrored the evolution of this problem as well. Uh, the first set of enterprise software were these legacy, now now legacy uh, on-premise systems like uh, uh, name names, but uh, they were deployed on your company's own data centers, for example. Uh, then the second wave was um, on the internet, uh, deployed top-down. Um, examples here are Salesforce and Workday. And now we live arguably in the third wave, which is bottoms-up consumerized versions of SaaS. And uh, in a way, the number of software and as a result, knowledge fragmentation has been growing with each successive wave. And hence the problem is also getting more and more pronounced. And it's reflected this enterprise search quote unquote category, which looks to centralize all of the information uh, through a single point of entry. And, and uh, that's really what Dashworks is, uh, Dashworks is trying to help our customers with. Yeah, it's so pro it's such a it's such a crazy problem um, uh, because as you mentioned, the, there's the three waves: the on-premise enterprise software, uh, and then on on the internet deployed top down, and then the third wave SaaS consumer. And this third wave is so fragmented. Uh, I mean, if I even tried to think about all the different apps that we use at Invisible, I could probably come up with like fifty, maybe fifty is probably the number. Uh, and like, and I, I was just on calls all day about one problem we're having with a client's, uh, a client's software that is then hard to, they did an update on their side uh, and then we're trying to download it on our side. Uh, and then there's this particular thing that the software did, uh, they made it really hard. So now we're gonna have to go through and manually do that. And it just happens all the time. And it's so crazy because people say the technology is supposed to get better and better and better, but it feels like I'm actually at a place where it, I'm experiencing problems that I don't think my father or my grandfather experienced in, inside of these organizations. Like, I think the problem is now so crazy. Um, so uh, uh, what is your take on how are you guys going to do it? What, what what are the biggest problems that you guys have solved? Yeah, that's a great point. So um, I guess one lens to think about here is like, why is web search or internet search 
so much more better than internal search. It is a little bit of a conundrum where the vastness of the internet is easier to search than our own purviews of nine to five, like our own work related roles. And uh, there are a few technical differences in the way the internet is structured and how intranets are structured, which uh, of course uh, we had to tackle in order to be able to solve this problem. One of them, for example, is that the web is uh, all homogenous in the kinds of data it has. It's all HTML pages and nicely, like there is a common language, so to speak. But in internal apps, you have different uh, data formats, whether it be Jira tickets or Slack messages or Notion wikis that the AI or the search engine has to be able to understand. There are a couple of others as well. Uh, for example, there's no concept of permissioning on the web. Everything is public by default. But inside an intranet, you have this concept of entitlements uh, where different team members can access certain content and you need the enterprise search engine to be able to respect that. Um, another example here is that uh, uh, there's not a lot of usage data to go with to be able to improve the search relevance and ranking. On the web, you have literally millions of users training the system through their usage. And inside an intranet, uh, you, you have hundreds or maybe thousands of users who are giving this kind of feedback loop. So that also poses a unique challenge. So those are three examples. Uh, in summary, data format being heterogeneous versus homogenous, uh, there being entitlements that you have to be able to map and respect, and uh, uh, third mm. one being that the amount of data that you have for training the system is, is limited. Uh, mm. Those are just three examples of challenges that one has to overcome to be able to build an enterprise search solution. That's so wild. Uh, okay, well, let's go on the first one. Why Why is the web all homogenous? That's a great point. And I don't, I, <laughs> I, I, I want to know more about the history here, but um, I think my, my understanding so far is that um, there was just a huge open source. It wasn't called open source, but there was a huge kind of uh, consortium uh, in the early days of the web, which uh, standardized some of the uh, languages and uh, communication protocols and so on. And of course, one of the outcomes there was HTTP, HTML, all of the building blocks that the last 30 years, they've stuck around and provided a great infrastructure for the internet. So um, my understanding is that that was what uh, led, and, and it was remarkably prescient in a, prescient in a sense that it stood the test of the time. Uh, of course, it's evolved over time with like JavaScript and other systems coming in, but uh, still under the underlying, so to speak, language or, or the data format is still HTML to a large degree. And that makes it easier, mm. not trivial, but easier for a, universal search engine to be built on the web. Uh, imagine if Google had to build a custom indexer or parser for every website. There's just no way we would have billions of sites searched uh, every time in within seconds, when within milliseconds really, when you put something in Google. Um, that's really where the state of the art is in the enterprise search engine though. You have to build custom indexers and parsers a lot of the times for Salesforce versus Slack and Notion, Google Drive. And there's just not a great un universal data format that has come about yet. Separately though, if I may maybe looking forward, uh, some of these AI technologies that have become possible in the last six to nine months, what they allow a system to do is understand unstructured data really well. And an implication of this is that even if you have, you're looking at a Jira issue or a Slack message or a Confluence wiki, the AI is generalizable enough that it can do with uh, understanding these disparate data formats in a reasonably good manner. So the cost of building an integration to a new platform goes down, but it's still not as easy as just indexing a new web page. Mm. 
Okay, there's a lot we could talk about here. I want to go to the third point that we mentioned as well, the intranets, uh, um, uh, what we're talking about, oh, millions of users are training the systems. But, uh, but what you just said is really interesting about the LLMs and the cost of building an integration is lowering and lowering. And you guys had started before the LLMs had started to, to take over. And I know that we had, we had used your legacy product. And the key thing that you were talking about was um, uh, integrating all of these different things together. So you guys were already integrating these different systems together. Um, and, and it feels like to me that you guys have, have, have and had a lot of um, essentially like iteration speed of, of like building out quick integrations. Can you talk more about that development before the LLMs? Uh, and then now with the LLMs, how maybe you guys are using the LLMs? Are your is your speed of development increasing? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. So uh, maybe just for the uh, audience, like uh, the legacy product was a classical enterprise search engine that would index all of a company's internal data from Slack to Notion, Google Drive, into a keyword search engine, something along the lines of say Lucene or Elastic, uh, with uh, some semantic understanding built on top of it, some machine learning built on top of it, but the underlying technology was still that you had to index all of the data. And in order to do this indexing, you had to build custom parsers and in, uh, integrations with different services. And a lot of the effort that we spent on uh, in that classical pro uh, legacy product was getting the right building blocks in place or Lego bricks in place, so to speak, that would allow us to build integrations quickly. Um, a huge learning there for the ecosystem broadly is that building integration is actually not a, not the hard part in some way. It's the it is the maintenance of it, mm. which is kind of like the death by thousand cuts in some way because you're spending say maybe a week to build an integration if you have the right building blocks in place, a week of engineering engineering hours, but um, or engineering time. But uh, the maintenance can last like a year. Like you're still maintaining say API updates or bugs and issues and corner cases and so on. And we can dive in a lot into uh, some of the challenges there and like uh, but. Um, Going back to like how AI is making it easier, one of the uh, emerging possibilities of LLMs is that, uh, specifically LLMs that have three properties. One, that they are really fast, so they're real time. Second is that they are generalizable. They can understand um, uh, uh, context from healthcare to marketing to software to engineering, like the same LLM can do that and you don't have to have custom trained LLMs. And the third is that the context window for these LLMs has grown a lot. So they can kind of hold a lot of information and memory to respond to questions from a customer. And an implication of this trend is that you no longer need to index data to be able to respond to questions on proprietary knowledge basis. And as a result, the integrations that you build are a lot simpler because you're just not indexing all of the data inside your own database uh, from Slack or Notion or Google Drive and so on, which is what our legacy product used to do. And so our new product, which makes use of these LLMs, can get away with making real-time search API calls in Slack, Notion, Google Drive, or different services that you're using and making sense of it real-time and then responding with a question. And um, that dramatically reduces the time it takes to build and maintain integrations. Mm. Uh, it's also... A, it's it's in the realm of research at the moment, but it's getting close to, it's in the realm of applied research, getting close to productionization in my opinion in the next three to six months is that there's a format which is probably in some way close to HTML, well, not exactly uh, on the internet for internal APIs or private APIs, which is called open API. Uh, it's a, a standardized format that has been agreed upon roughly by different private API providers. Wow. And these LLMs are pretty good at understanding an open API spec, 
So it's a spec. It's basically like a, a YAML uh, document. And as a result, learn how to use the APIs. So they're able to kind of like figure out, okay, given this user question, this is the API call I need to make in Slack or Notion or Google Drive. And if you unlock that, that's arguably, then the marginal cost of building a new integration goes down to practically zero because wow. you have understood how to connect with an arbitrary API and you're no longer spending time building an integration. So that's a not, that seems to be not star, at least in the near term. Uh, possibly it might even improve in the future, but that's something that we're building towards as well. Wow, interesting. Uh, okay, and that kind of answered the question of essentially uh, how your development kind of framework or how your development speed has been increased by LLMs. Um, uh, there's, it has, you had mentioned that one of the challenges with your legacy product was that uh, the maintenance time was huge. And now that you guys are on this, uh, um, this LLM, you've got an LLM making it much easier to search. Is that still the case? Do you still run into a lot of uh, a lot of um, bugs when it comes to connecting different pieces of software together? Yeah, unfortunately, that's still the case. I think uh, uh, we still spend more time maintaining our integrations, even though the cost of integration maintenance has also gone down in absolute terms. But you still spend more time maintaining integrations than building integrations. And uh, we have some things in the works that in the industry more broadly that can simplify this. And for example, being able to better track changes in the API underlying APIs itself. So one of the, so to speak, dependency here, dependency here is if the underlying API breaks for some reason or returns data in a format that is not documented and there's an anomaly, um, the downstream processes also break. And so to speak, the contract has broken and our system is not able to handle that well. So there are lots, there's some progress going on there about how do we monitor, uh, what kind of data do we expect? Has it broken? How do we raise alerts earlier and all of that kind of stuff that we are also looking at? Mm. Okay, so let's take this into a conversation about, you know, because this is where we've been on the technical side, understanding what the legacy product is, what, what how the evolution has now come on with LLMs. Now let's talk about the clients and it, like from their perspective, you know, they've got these disparate knowledge bases together uh, and they've got this new technology that's going to change a lot of things uh, with machine learning and AI. Um, how can they prepare or like what are some things that you've been seeing of your clients of how they can prepare for this coming change? Like what are some of the things they can do with their knowledge bases to make those knowledge bases more actionable? I think that's a great question and very pertinent. Um, there are still several open challenges in knowledge management that AI won't, is not positioned to address in my opinion, at least in the near term, or there don't seem to be great design patterns out there just yet. An example of this is the in, like the AI's responses are oftentimes almost as good as the knowledge base itself is. If your knowledge base is out of date or has gaps in it, then the AI can probably help surface those. It can probably surface that, hey, there is a conflict in the information here, or hey, there is a knowledge gap in this space because people are asking about this question, but I'm not able to find the response to it. Do you want to add to it? And so on. But there is still that element of human verification or uh, the right incentives to get people to maintain and build, and build knowledge, which a um, little bit seems to be open. And of course, there are people, there, there, are, like, there are approaches that seem well positioned to tackle that, um, uh, that we're also experimenting with. Um, but I think going back to your question, uh, one thing broadly that the AI does make possible is that it unlocks a lot of the 
unstructured data inside an enterprise. So information that's buried in your Slack threads, information that's buried in your Jira tickets, your Salesforce records, your Zoom transcripts, which are, to be honest, we are, it's outgrowing the ability for any team to be able to document it well in a wiki. It's just evolving so quickly. You're having dozens of Zoom transcripts and Zoom calls and gong calls, for example. How do you share the learnings from that and document it and keep your sales playbook up to date? Um, of course, you can get better at it, but uh, there is a merit. There is merit to just accepting the fact that, okay, it's a great tool to be able to unlock that data and go to the source of truth in this case. Another source of truth that's not tabbed yet, but something that's on the horizon is, databases or data warehouses where arguably 80, 90% of, a, don't quote me on that number, but a yeah. huge percentage of a company's data lives is the product analytics that is streaming in from your company's data or from your go-to-market team, whatever might be the case. And right now you need to be a SQL ninja to be able to talk to your data warehouse. Typically there are maybe a max a dozen of these people inside a, inside a, a SMB mid-market company. So how can AI make sense of that as well and unlock and make it demo, make it broadly accessible? That's another direction that we're thinking about. And are you guys thinking about doing that? Or are you guys already doing that in terms of making natural language inquiries into SQL databases? We've done, we've done promising experiments. It's certainly something that our customers are really excited about because um, every team has would love to be more data-driven. I don't think any team makes the claim that, okay, we want to be less data. And it's just that it's just inaccessible and takes a lot of time. And typically you have to go to an expert inside a company, quote unquote, to be able to do so. So um, we've gotten some very vocal feedback around like how Dashi can help with that. And it's something that we hopefully can take a crack on in the next three to four months or so. Mm. And so like, what are the main differences? So so that's that's like going into the database and using SQL, You it has to be very highly trained engineer in order to make or to find relevant data inside of databases. And maybe to make that a bit clearer for my audience, like a database maybe uh, holding you know, information on users and how often they connect with um, the platform or how long they're on the platform or all these different things um, that are really specific to databases. And then on the other side, the thing that Dashworks is already up and running on is this essentially like you've got Notion, you've got Slack, you've got Google Drive, you've got Gmail, you've got all these things where it's just like, where it's not sort of just like crazy mathematical uh, programming databases type of user sessions and such, but it's more um, just like, how do I find out this information about uh, the pay cycle? Or how do I find out uh, who is the responsible party for uh, getting time off or all these different things that are just like supernatural language. Uh, wh what is the, what's the, the main differences between building a solution for both of those things? Are they the same problem or, or are they um, uh, uh, pretty different problems? I think technically it's a quite a different problem. Uh, one, because uh, data analytics and warehouses are a lot messier in some way than um, then some of these structured mm -hmm. databases for sure, uh, where actually even engineers sometimes don't know exactly what is the right field or source of the right table to go after and so on. So technically it's a, I would say like definitely a messier challenge to take on versus um, just building with something that's like ingesting data in like text format, like from Slack or Notion or whatever. Uh, um, arguably also the uh, premium to get the right response is higher when you're dealing with data analytics and warehouses because you don't want to be making wrong decisions based on incorrect responses that the AI has about uh, 
your sales pipeline or your usage statistics or retention and so on. Um, so part of it is that we do think like at least the feedback that we've gotten so far from customers that they do expect that the fidelity of the Dasha is trained to be uh, not to not hallucinate, but these LLMs are in a way uh, creative tools and they will mm-hmm. in some in some cases make up stuff for better or worse. And oftentimes it reflects some inaccuracies in the underlying data data itself, but uh, uh, that, that holds even more true when you're dealing with data warehouses. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, okay, so let's go back to the question of how companies and how clients can format their knowledge bases and understand their knowledge bases and understand to get the most insights out of something like Dashworks or 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 even just to prepare for the LLMs. Um, and I'm trying to think of the right question here to elicit the best answer. It's like, um, we've already gone over the fact that there's these disparate sources of truth, not only for, uh, uh, you know, Slack, Notion, all these different knowledge bases, but there's also disparate sources for all the data warehouses and such. Uh, how, how, and okay, and so what does good look like? What does good look like for a company to actually be able to set up their knowledge bases in a way uh, that can prepare them for uh, LLMs and and potentially even highly advanced LLMs? I think that's a fantastic question. Um, I think, it, in my opinion, it's to do more with the workflows or the, um, if, like, the thing that goes around the content. So um, understanding clear ownership of who is owning this part of the wiki, let's say, or the knowledge base. Uh, what is the cadence of maintaining it um how are updates communicated to the team it's so to speak those uh, personnel workflows around the wiki and, and the content uh, that i don't see uh, lm solving just yet uh, and it's something that um, is actually going to the, uh, it's a little bit cliche at this point but the better data that goes in the better the responses come out and the better you'll be able to make use of the tool so that can have a that can go a long way in making sure that a company is well set up to maximize their value from an llm just a little bit of like hygiene around clear ownership of different parts of the information so to speak hierarchy inside their company um, clear cadence of keeping it up to date and com- communication around when things are getting up to date or when things are falling behind. I think that that seems to be mm-hmm. something that's a low hanging, not, it's not a low hanging, let me take a step back. It's actually not a low hanging yeah. because it requires hard. Uh, <laughs> It's really hard. Sorry, let yeah. me take a step. Um, in the sense that that's the immediate step that comes, comes, comes to mind that com- is universal as well. It's not specific to every team and every team can probably make, but the challenge here is oftentimes that you have, it's cross departmental. It yeah. works. And I'm speaking to the core here, but like if you can get it to work across different teams, that's that's where the value really shines. Yeah, and that's one of the huge problems at Invisible. Uh, Invisible is such a diverse company. Uh, we're doing so many different things and so many different pathways, and and like it's really hard to nail down exactly what it is we're doing. Although we provide a huge amount of value to our clients. Um, and so not only is it like a traditional company where there's that cross department challenge. 
then we have like cross team challenge at like at, at, at the bottom layer of people doing the actual work. That work is so vastly different that it's so hard to, to go cross functionally between the finance and the people team, but then also between all of the different teams underneath all those different teams. Uh, it's, it's a wild, totally challenging problem. And as you said, so essentially the clear thing to get out of this was that how can companies uh, basically get ready for LLMs uh, and, and very advanced intelligence uh, it's basically clear hygiene of uh, all the different knowledge bases, making sure that the actual information and knowledge is, is accurate, um, keeping it up to date, uh, and then establishing a sort of ownership channel. Um, and, and so that that's a really good point of essentially how to make uh, these knowledge bases accessible to these LLMs. Uh, and it's something that only human beings can do. I guess we could go, go into a little bit of a philosophical uh, bent because we could start to talk about like... I, I'm so curious on your, from your perspective, you just mentioned that there's a huge thing that human beings need to do. They can't outsource this. They can't delegate it to, uh, to machines. And I'm curious if you have any other thoughts on, on like, as we move into this age where things just become much, much easier to automate, uh, what are the things that we'll never be able to automate to computers? Hmm. <laughs> that's a, that's a great question. Um, I do think, uh, I think it's hard to say this in the limit of time, like in the long limit of time, but let me maybe address this. Let me make the question slightly easier for myself. It's like, yes, go for in, it. <laughs> in the scope of say LMs as they stand today, what are some things that we won't be able to do? Assuming that scaling laws play out and just for some context, scaling laws are basically like if you increase the data, amount of data that an LM is trained on and increase the compute and train for longer, the LMs just get smarter. That's really the scaling law. So assume that scaling laws still continue to play out where does the current technology of LMs kind of like, where is it limited at? And I think there's some, a lot of evidence growing that there, it's, it's, it's a decent memorization engine, it's a decent generalization engine, but it, it, it does have limits in terms of its reasoning capabilities and its, its accuracy and so on. So I do think like in the near term, uh, I don't see a way around where for really critical tasks, you will need humans at the very least to verify the output in some way of the AI. Like you cannot take it at ground truth. There'll be some cases where the risk associated with an incorrect response and the odds of an incorrect response are low enough that you'll be okay with just like trusting the AI and maybe verifying it yourself. But there will be a premium to having humans in the loop to verify human output. I, I don't see that going away, at least with where the current technology stands. And it seems like that human loop will need to become more expert level as well. Because if, you know, if let's take the example of a surgeon using ALM for some sort of like really important uh, uh, task to understand where the diagnosis is and and whether it's in the liver or the heart. Uh, and it's like the somebody would need to be actually trained medically in order to understand that that output and to be that human in the loop. So it's like not only does it need to be human in the loop, but oftentimes it's going to be need to be a specialized human in the loop as well, um, which I find fascinating. Do you have any thoughts on that? That's a, such a great point, actually, that uh, these are new tools. And while the promise of LLMs is that it's probably as intuitive and user human computer interface as probably seems on the horizon right now, but it is still something that you have to learn how to use well. And in order to be able to leverage it accurately, it's just like learning any other tool, whether it be a machine uh, that surgeons use to get surgeries done, or in this case, an LLM to be able to understand diagnosis or whatever might be the case. And um, yeah, I think that's definitely something that needs to be double clicked on. 
Mm. So let's go. I would love to understand from, you know, I think Dashworks is like mostly engineers. Um, you guys really know this engineering space really well. Uh, how are you guys using AI within your your programming, uh, uh, specifically at Dashworks? And and to set this up a little bit more, uh, my general take is that I when I talk to programmers and I ask programmers how they're using AI, they generally use it <clears throat> um, mostly as just like a partner, a thought partner to go to ChatGPT, excuse me, and get, you know, like, oh, I'm going into this new field that I don't understand about. Let me go ask ChatGPT about this field so that I can get a, a really quick yeah. rundown. Um, and uh, but they don't really use it a whole lot in their coding. But at me as this non-technical person, I've started to use it as like a as a thing that will actually code for me. And I don't actually know enough to say, okay, um, uh, that was wrong or that was right. And when I, I get stuck a lot and trying to put all these pieces together, um, and and so how are you guys using uh, AI within your programming? Yeah, that's a that's a good point. So, um, just as some context, like we use Dash, we use uh, AI for programming in the context of Dash AI itself, like the product that we're building, as well as some LLM, public LLM tools uh, like Copilot and and so on. Um, from Dash AI's perspective, uh, Dash AI connects with GitHub, Confluence, Jira, Linear, Notion, Slack, so the common engineering tools that engineers use internally to get work done. And a few of the use cases that are recurring both internally at Dashworks as well as other teams that use it are onboarding, to your point, like onboarding to a new code base or uh, to a new product or a new service, uh, oftentimes requires you to dig deeper into the code and under, kind of like synthesize information that might be in Jira issues, Slack messages, Confluence wikis, GitHub code comments, and so on. And Dasha is able to kind of like do that synthesis for you and respond to your questions around um, code bases and so on. So that's a recurring use case that we see. Internally, it's been super useful for us to actually ramp up engineers on, on our code base. Another has been around um, on-call and support, where oftentimes by definition, you're... Uh, in a lot of cases, like you're looking at the long tail of the issues when something is breaking down or so, so some uh, customer support ticket has been raised and being able to quickly grok uh, what might be the root cause of this issue and what may be possible solutions by using Dash AI as to your point, like as a brainstorming partner or using it to kind of like guide you in the right direction has been really useful for us and we're seeing other teams adopt it for as well. And then uh, the third uh, use case is uh, kind of related to the first point that we made, which is around helping create and maintain documentation by uh, synthesizing GitHub code, for example, or Slack messages around a topic and converting into a wiki that can now be moved into Confluence, for example, and can be, become a long-term source of truth for this topic is something that Dash AI does. So it can generate these wikis, so to speak, around certain technical topics after the project has been completed, for example, and serve as a source of truth. So there are three of the use cases that come to mind about mm -hmm. how our engineers are using Dashwords. Yeah, it's super interesting. I didn't even know that uh, that you guys had the implementations because I haven't been using it inside of any code base, but I didn't realize you could connect with Jira, with um, GitHub in order to actually go in and have that same quick understanding of what's going on uh, through the LLM. Um, and so I would love to talk more about helping create document. Well, actually, let's talk, let's talk about how you think it's going to change coding in general, uh, either with Dashworks as well, having this buddy that can kind of go into your code bases to understand the code quickly. Um, but in what ways do you think software is going to change from, from this new paradigm that we're entering? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think like uh, the grand promise of like AI for, if I may say so, is for AI for programming is that it will make it broadly accessible to 
everybody. And uh, what I mean by that is if you look at the evolution of coding, it starts with uh, binary to assembly language to low-level programming languages to C to high-level programming languages or easier to use programming languages as Python. And arguably, this is the next evolution, which is like make programming as easy as natural language, like talking to a computer, like talking to a person or talking to a computer and have the pro computer program itself. In some ways, that's really what's happening, especially with where the field with say code interpreter and so on, that's the that's one of the um, uh, that's one of the directions that is also aligned with this seems to be headed. And of course, there's a lot of some a lot of research that seems to point that point towards that programmers are becoming a lot more productive by using things like Copilot. Um, I forget the exact numbers, but it's like 50% more productive if you're using Copilot or something along those lines. Um, and yeah, I think both trends will continue to be the case where exist like programmers will continue to become a lot more productive and in the limit like where this might end up and I think it's already seems to be playing out is everybody will be able to use um, an, an AI to directly program the computer in some ways. Um, and the number of programmers uh, in the world right now is a bottleneck, I, I would argue. Like uh, we could do with more people having programming abilities. And I think that's also reflected in how programmers are in general approaching the space. I'm not hearing a lot of um, uh, hesitation from existing programmers about their jobs at being risked, for example, because they can tell that it's actually increasing the productivity for themselves and, of course, uh, also make it more broadly accessible uh, so that other people can also uh, contribute to the space. Yeah, I think the key differentiator will be if it can turn non-technical people into programmers. Uh, and I know that that was one of my first forays into, into this mm -hmm. space was uh, I remember getting 3.5 uh, uh, GPT 3.5 back in, I think it was like November. Uh, and immediately I tried to get it to code for me because I remember my uncle who started the software company back in, in the eighties, um, talking about one day the computers will be able to write code for us oh, wow. and be able to improve their own code. Uh, and so I've been waiting for this moment for a long time. And then I tried it in November with 3.5 didn't work at all. Uh, and, and, uh, then GPT four came out, I think it was in January or something like that. I tried it was able to work. Uh, and, and since then it's been, you know, I, I still am not technical by any means, and, but I'm, I'm, you know, I can kind of jerry rig it to get something. And I got, you know, I got my first app that was somewhat useful. Um, and so, you know, the, the pace at which it's increasing is, is going so quickly. Uh, but I, you know, but it's still not there. It still took a huge amount of complexity. I don't think most non-technical people would be up for uh, going through the complexity that I went through in order to get it, get it going. Um, but it's headed there. And I think once that happens, then, then that might be a sea change in terms of, um, in terms of software development. Uh, well, what do you, what do you think that world looks like, you know, to be highly speculative? Uh, what, what do you think that world looks like of non-technical people programming? Uh, and like, what does that do to software? I think uh, I think in what that world looks like is like you can create your own tools in some way, as in like you're no longer bottlenecked by. Uh, yeah, you can basically like it's like a general purpose machine that can help you create a custom tool for your own workflow. Like whether it be um, like right now we you know we stuck with the softwares that we can purchase on the market in some way. And while there are a lot of them uh, in the order of like thousands, um, but uh, oftentimes probably all of us 
it's like you'll only be limited by your imagination in terms of the tools that you can create. Um, I think it's hard for me to, to be honest, think of second order implications on mm. just yet. Like where, what does that world in turn unlock? Um, I don't want to get too speculative. Like, does this have implications in terms of how our economy functions? Like, what mm. if, where does like capital, what implications does it have on capitalism? Where if everybody's creating their own services and tools, like what are you purchasing from other people? What does money have, have to do with? It? So I, I, I don't mean to presume that I have a lot of, uh, I have thought about it too much, but th there will be interesting implications about this in general, which is that if you can create your own products and services and tools uh, at the very least on the software side, uh, then um, yeah, how, how this evolves society more broadly. Yeah, it's it's wild. I love what you said about uh, you're limited by your own imagination. And for me, it feels like SaaS software in some ways may not be around for a lot longer in term, because it, it feels like for the last 20 years, it's like SaaS software has been essentially a a, a specific solution to the problem of having, a, like the, having the internet and having coding be this highly specialized thing. Um, and that, you know, they, these companies, the bunch of developers get together and they build these um, standardized solutions to business problems that really, you know, they don't fit every business and they don't fit every problem, but they fit enough problems and enough businesses to make it valuable. Um, but then as as we've been talking about, it's just created such a hydra of all these disparate pieces of software uh, that don't play well together. And then there's all these, you know, open API kind of um, uh, solutions that may change things uh, significantly. And it seems like in an ideal world that everything will work really well together. And if it doesn't, then I can go out as a non-technical person interacting with this LLM and just on the fly, create at least a front end on the fly, just from a picture, give the picture to the, to the, to the LLM and then LLM spits out the code that I need to build the thing. Uh, and then there's the back end thing. And maybe that could turn this into a question as well. It's like, you know, I've already seen evidence that these LLMs are going to be able to take a picture, create a front end, front end very quickly. And from a technical person, I'd love to understand, well, what does that do? Like to have just have a front end as opposed to all the stuff that needs to happen in the back end to make that front end fully functional. Like uh, if I just make front end after front end, like that's not really going to do anything. But if I connect those front ends with back ends, and then also, I guess it's the APIs to other services as well. Well, can you explain me to me and my listeners like about about what is all the complexity in terms of connecting all these different pieces together in this future that we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you nailed one of the pieces on its head, which is like a lot of progress being made on the front end side. Um, also, interestingly, a lot of progress being made on the back end side with Python scripts or different ways of kind of like programming the back end. Then a couple of other pieces are the infrastructure layer, like mm -hmm. how do you use the right storage, database, uh, compute layer, and so on. And I think w one direction that's promising there is like, there are these uh, now infrastructure as code tools like Terraform and other others, which essentially um, convert the task of infrastructure provisioning into a programming language task. So if you can do programming, mm -hmm. generate programming language uh, code using an arbitrary programming language, then you can also provision stuff on your infrastructure, which is in this case, a AWS cloud and so on. And then the fourth is 
making uh, calls to APIs, which is a little bit in the realm of what we are trying to do, which is uh, an AI that can make arbitrary calls to different APIs. So that's also definitely seems to be in the realm. And yeah, I think with those four pieces, uh, I don't think I'm missing, maybe there's like a little bit of a long tail, couple of pieces here and there, but those are the four primary pieces that you need to be able to crack. And I don't see any evidence yet that any of them are beyond the reach in the next three to six months, even if I'm being optimistic, um, great work being done by great work being done. I think it's, it's a matter of like reliability to your point, right? Like you can probably start using it to some degree already. And I'm not sure if it needs to be that binary switch. Uh, it will maybe just progressively keep improving and eventually it'll just come to rely on it so much that, uh, you don't need to uh, even like uh, validate the output or whatever might be the case, but I'm not sure if it'll be super reliable in three to six months, but it'll be mm -hmm. definitely, I feel like it's something that we can start leveraging for our use cases. Great work done here by Code Interpreter, uh, which is I think now called Advanced Data Analysis by OpenAI. Also great work done by Vercel, which recently announced um, a product called I think like v0.dev um, and, and a few other players as well. So uh, that's definitely where this space seems to be headed. So crazy. Um, so I want to go back to that point about, well, I want to, I want to sum up what you, what I believe you said, because I'm not sure I get it, got it all. Uh, so we have, you had four points and the one that stuck out, stuck out to me was the infrastructure provisioning. And that means connecting with things like AWS in order to build the cloud and, and maybe DevOps, something like that. Uh, and then there was um, a storage database compute layer. Were the, was those were those the four infrastructure storage database compute layer in terms of the back end or what were those four again? Yeah, I think so. Infrastructure um, ability to call other APIs, uh, the backend scripting, and uh, front end by all design plus front end. Okay. Got it. Uh, within infrastructure itself, to your point, there are multiple building blocks like compute, storage, uh, uh, scalability, and different ways that you can kind of like slice and dice that. But uh, infrastructure, by the way, I've not seen a lot of great attempts at that, or at least I, I'm not aware of any. But uh, the argument that I was just, uh, just trying to think through is like, it's collapsed a little bit to now the ability to call these uh, infrastructure as a coding language problem. So if you're able to kind of like manipulate Terraform, arguably you can, or, or similar languages, there are a few others as well. You mm -hmm. can also solve the infrastructure provisioning problem. Um, that's, that's, that's super wild in the sense that you can actually have scalable apps uh, built on the fly. Like what if you can, mm -hmm. in the extreme case, can you make like TikTok since that's the name of the game? Like, can you build TikTok in a day? Like, what mm -hmm. does that world look like? That, mm -hmm. that, that could look really crazy, yeah. Yeah, and not only TikTok on the day, but also build a scalable TikTok on the day. Well, that might have been what you were saying. It's just like, yeah, be able to build something that could be used by a billion people in a day. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, oh, there's a question, but it's now disappeared. Um, uh, okay. So where, let's take another five minutes. Uh, where is Dashworks going in the next few months? I think a couple of directions that uh, we're, we're pursuing based on a lot, of, a lot of it is based on customer feedback is unlocking some of these data sources that we talked about, like data warehouse and analytics, where a lot of information is today inaccessible to the broader enterprise. Um, that's something that we are doubling down on. Um, another direction that we're really excited about is uh, going back to this uh, analogy of Dashia being able to manipulate APIs directly. Um, today it's manipulating read APIs. So it can read information from your Slack, Notion, Google Drive and answer questions. And the action it can take is print out an answer. What if it could also actually take actions in the source apps 
which are exposed to the same APIs, but these are right APIs. So what if we could actually send emails on your behalf or mm. update your Salesforce on your behalf and kind of like close the loop on actually getting stuff done, not just printing out a piece of text and you have to utilize it, which itself solves problems around information access and so on. But we think like that action slash workflows piece could be even that much more impactful and something that we're headed towards. Um, those are two of the immediate things that uh, we think like our customers are excited about and something that could have a big impact in, in terms of enterprise usage. Yeah, that's so cool. So that instead of just being a sort of like read all the data everywhere inside of an organization, it can also become that sort of autonomous agent that people have been talking about. Are you guys starting? Are you guys following all of the autonomous agent um, uh, development stuff? Are you guys incorporating some of that? Are you guys building autonomous agents? Or I guess, I guess, what's the difference between an autonomous agent uh, and Dashworks? And could you incorporate autonomous agents into what you guys are doing? Yeah, definitely. I think when uh, that that's been always part of the uh, plan and where we want to take the system, um, based on like uh, whether, but we're also building it in layers based on where uh, the reliability bar can be met in a way that it's useful yeah. today. Kind of like flying the plane while you're building it. That's something that we have to do. So today we focus, but we have posi- like we've laid down the foundations in a way that allows us to build the next layer relatively quickly. So. Right now, we're making these read API calls. The next level is to make write API calls as well. And there are other steps as well required for an autonomous, truly autonomous agent. For example, um, being able to have multi-hop thinking. So being able to kind of like create a plan and follow follow up on steps and so on. Dashworks today, for example, is a single, single hop. If you ask it a question, it just responds. If it doesn't know, it doesn't follow up on like other questions or kind of is able to coordinate a strategy or a plan around solving that problem. There are multiple steps in this process, but um, yeah, certainly something that we see the product headed towards. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, and how can people find out more about Dashworks? Thanks, Stuart, for having me again. Um, we, you can learn more about Dashworks on our website, Dashworks.ai. Cool. Thank you so much. Thanks, Stuart. Bye. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, III. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.